welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Mabel Romero, Associate Professor at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And today our guest is Lee Goodmark, Marjorie Cook Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Clinical Law Program at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. And today we have the privilege of talking about her book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, a balanced policy approach to intimate partner violence published in 2018. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So this book is really fascinating, gives a, a very nice overview generally as to the history of DV before talking about um, these different policy approaches that you suggest in the book um, and sort of very different ways of looking at domestic violence and maybe most people are really familiar with or accustomed to doing. So can we just get into discussing the history of the criminalization of domestic violence for a little bit. You, you start with this interesting and fascinating history in colonial America, and you work from there, talk about VAWA and the like. So if you could give us a little bit of an overview, I think that'd be really helpful. Absolutely. Um, so domestic violence has been criminalized in the United States for hundreds of years. And in fact, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, domestic violence was illegal. So the idea that domestic violence has never been addressed through criminalization is simply wrong. Um, and there are really amazing scholars doing fascinating work re-looking at this history. But it's fair to say that by the time that you get to about the 1950s or 60s in the United States, it, police intervention in cases of domestic violence is pretty rare. And there are a number of reasons for that. Some have to do with looking at domestic violence as a private rather than a public problem. Some have to do with the prevailing theories about what caused domestic violence and the idea that it was really masochistic women who were the problem and not so much their abusive partners. Um, but by the late 50s, 60s, you really have very little intervention. And that starts to change in the 1970s, and it starts to change because of the battered women's movement, which grows out of the feminist movement of the 1970s. And the first changes to the law were really not changes to the criminal system. They were changes to the civil system. But in time, anti-violence advocates started to ask, why is it that police aren't intervening in these cases? And the answer that they came up with was, police have too much discretion. They don't have to make an arrest if they don't want to make an arrest. They can't make an arrest without a warrant um, in most of these cases. And so changes to the law included provision for warrantless arrests first, and then something called mandatory arrest. Mandatory arrest is exactly what it sounds like. The idea that whenever police have probable cause to make an arrest, they must make that arrest. So previously, if police came to the scene of a domestic violence incident, their training manuals at the time said, you know, take the guy for a walk around the block. And at that time, it was always a guy. It was always a husband. But don't make an arrest because this is not really a public matter. Anti-violence activists looked at that and said, this can't be anymore. We need to treat domestic violence as a crime like any other crime. And the way that we do that is through mandatory arrest. Those efforts got bolstered by research in the early 1980s that suggested that arrest deterred recidivist domestic violence. Now, replications of those studies showed that, in fact, that uh, correlation wasn't quite as clear. But at the time, people looked at that and thought, well, if arrest deters recidivist violence, then everybody should be making arrests. So in 1977, the first mandatory arrest law was passed in Oregon. Um, in 1984, forgive me, um, this study that I mentioned came out. By the 90s, you know, half the jurisdictions in the country have mandatory arrest laws. Having looked at arrest... Anti-violence advocates then said, well, we have all these arrests happening now, but we don't have prosecution happening. Why is that? Went to prosecutors and said, why is it that you're not prosecuting these cases? Prosecutors said, we can't prosecute without our star witness, and they don't want to help um, for various reasons. They won't testify. 
And so we can't bring these cases forward. Two things really came out of that. One is something called evidence-based prosecution, which is just the idea that you prosecute a case of domestic violence in much the same way you prosecute a homicide, without assuming that you have a witness, a live witness, to testify. So you collect all of the physical evidence, you get all of the documentary evidence, you do everything you can to establish the facts of the case without needing that complaining witness. But the second thing that happened was something called no-drop prosecution, which allowed prosecutors to say, we don't really care so much what the victim wants. We're going to take this case forward whether the victim wants to or not. And in soft no-drop prosecutions, prosecutors' offices created incentives for victims to go forward. So the provision of services, for example, access to victim witness assistance. But in hard no-drop jurisdictions, prosecutors subpoenaed witnesses to testify, uh, victims to testify, and enforced those subpoenas using um, the arrest power, and in some cases arrested and jailed victims of violence to compel their testimony. And that's not historical. That started in the 80s, but it goes on today. Um, And so you'll still see in jurisdictions the use of material witness warrants to compel testimony from victims of domestic violence, most notably recently in the context of New Orleans, where the district attorney's office was faking subpoenas and then asking judges for material witness warrants to jail victims of domestic violence based on fake subpoenas. So when you look at the criminalization of intimate partner violence, there's definitely change to the substantive law, but that change to the substantive law is really secondary to these changes in police and prosecutorial procedure that made for much more active arrest and prosecution. So I recall, you know, and what, what your remarks reminded me of is actually being a, a law student and working for a summer in the LA County DA's office. I spent a summer doing a lot of prelims, particularly domestic violence prelims, where I was given that advice that when you're prosecuting one of these DV cases, you have to act like you are not going to have a live victim. Treat this like a murder case, um, which I thought was really strange in that it seemed to completely discount what individual victims wanted. So how did we get uh, go about just assuming that all victims want, you know, or, or, or that we should all be supporting the most punitive measures against um, these DD defendants? Because there were lots of, a lot of victims that I would talk to, or at least try to talk to, who said that this was not necessarily the way they wanted to move forward with the case, that this wasn't advantageous to them or to their families. Um, how did we get this sort of essentialized sort of account as to what victims need or wanted? It really came out of the struggle within the anti-violence movement about how best to address these cases. From the inception of the anti-violence movement, there were people in the movement saying, legal system is not the way to go. Law is not our friend, particularly the criminal legal system. And you know, not surprisingly, a lot of the, uh, that opposition came from people of color, from women of color, who knew very well that the legal system was not serving their communities particularly well and would not serve their families particularly well, and that they stood to be harmed much more than helped by the intervention of the legal system. And you have those kind of voices juxtaposed against the voices of, I'd say, a lot of lawyers, um, not altogether lawyers, but primarily lawyers, saying, no, 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 the way to deal with this is as a crime. And it's the, the problem that we're having in terms of our inability to stop intimate partner violence is directly related to the fact that we don't treat this like a crime. And therefore, societal norms around the acceptability of violence within families won't change unless and until we are able to use the criminal legal system to deal with these individual cases. We won't see the kind of change that we want. And then there's another narrative about coercion 
that was very much a, a part of this conversation. If you talk about domestic violence with most people, they'll tell you that domestic violence is about the desire for one partner to establish power and control over another partner. Some people now talk about coercive control, the idea that one partner uses a variety of tactics, including physical violence, but not solely physical violence, to maintain that kind of coercive control over the other partner. And the thought was that people who were being subjected to abuse abuse were so coercively controlled that they could not make good decisions about cooperating with prosecution. And therefore, the state needed to step in and make those decisions for them. So if you look at the older literature, you'll see these accounts of women who said, I was so happy that you decided to prosecute because I couldn't ask you to do that because I would have been battered. And undoubtedly, there were people who existed, who wanted prosecution and felt that they couldn't ask for it for whatever reason. But there were also lots of people who did not want prosecution, who do not want prosecution. And what we've done is essentially in this zero-sum world in which somebody has to make that decision, we've taken all the power to do that out of the hands of the victim and put it in the hands of the state, which is a condition that people of color, women of color, warned us about from the inception of this movement. Now, there's a really interesting point when you were discussing the sort of economic problems that might, well, that do um, contribute to um, intimate partner violence. And this misconception was really interesting to me because it was something that I had believed until I read your book that, you know, domestic partner violence and intimate partner violence happens without regard to race or ethnicity or social class that essentially happens across the board in equal measure to everyone. And that's not necessarily true, is it? It's absolutely not true. Um, But it was a really important part of the political case for things like the Violence Against Women Act. So when you are advocating for a broad-based law that's designed to deal with violence against women, you want the white men in power to care about it. And so you say to the white men in power, domestic violence happens to everyone. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic level is. Uh, It could be your wife. It could be your sister. Probably not your wife. It could be your sister. It could be your daughter. It could be your mother. It could be anyone. And that narrative is really a powerful part of the story told by the anti-violence movement around intimate partner violence in terms of trying to get broad buy-in to the idea that we needed all of these reforms. But when you look at the research, what you find is that actually intimate partner violence happens disproportionately in communities of color, happens disproportionately to lower income women particularly. And even if the rates were equal across the board, which they're not, it would still have a disproportionate impact on people of color and on low-income people just because of the way that systems are structured. So the intersection of systemic racism, for example, with intimate partner violence is really important. Um, the, the intersection of systemic disadvantage and income, income inequality is really important. It impacts your ability to access the kinds of services and supports that you might need in order to deal with, I don't say escape a violent situation because there are lots of people for whom escape is not what they're looking for. What they want is for their relationships to continue, but just not to be violent anymore. So to address that situation in whatever way that you want to address it. Um, And so that, that economic piece is really important because for lower income women, because they are disproportionately affected and because they often don't have resources to, for example, replace the income of their abusive partner or to find safe and available housing, that creates an additional barrier to them as they're trying to make decisions about how to address the violence in their lives. 
Now, I know that a few people, you know, in discussing these issues with them in class or even in my own work at some point, um, you know, have occasionally been a little bit uncomfortable getting away from this misconception that, okay, intimate partner, partner violence happens across a population. They don't, they feel uncomfortable saying, okay, this happens more in poor communities or amongst people of color because they worry about some sort of negative implication about those communities. Um, what what sort of economic and other social forces bear upon these populations and that might explain why there's a sort of um, outsized incidence of intimate partner violence in these communities? I, before I answer that, I just want to say I understand that completely. Um, there's a real discomfort with saying that this is disproportionate in certain kinds of communities because you don't want it to be dismissed. But I think what's important about it is that it's not innate to these communities. It's about the ways in which structural racism and structural income inequality intersect with violence that makes it more acute in these communities. So for example, under an unemployment in men highly, highly correlates with the perpetration of intimate partner violence. And you are likely to find under an unemployment in men among lower income men. It's just much more likely to happen that way. Um, and among women who are partnered with lower income men. So that piece, the ways in which our economy disadvantages folks with fewer skills, the way in which our economy disadvantages folks who are in more marginalized communities is directly feeding into rates of violence. You have to understand it that way. Um, similarly, what the research says is that intimate partner violence is more likely to occur in disadvantaged communities. And that, again, has to do with structural racism, the provision of services, the availability of work, the experiences of trauma, all of which are highly correlated with perpetration of intimate partner violence. So it's not a judgment about people of color or about lower income people. It's about the ways in which structures within society create the conditions within which violence flourishes and our refusal to do anything about those underlying conditions in favor of this pie in the sky narrative that says it happens to everybody. It's a way of individualizing this problem that allows us then to ignore all of the structural things that are feeding it. So you cover other forms of intimate partner violence. Um, you know, apart from the usual physical violence that we talk about and look at other types of um, abuse when we're speaking about these sorts of economic conditions that might arise to more difficult conditions, especially for women um, who are facing intimate partner violence. So could you talk about a, a bit more about um, potential economic control that one partner might exert over another, like coerced debt or something like that for those who might not be familiar? Yeah, there are a number of different ways that people exert economic control over their partners. Um, you interfere with someone's ability to work. You interfere with their ability to get an education. You run up debt in their name and then leave them to have to deal with it. You take, you steal their identity and use that to run up debt. Um, you put down a mortgage that you know can't be paid or you refuse then to help pay it. Um, and so, you know, we've always heard stories about uh, particularly wives in more traditional households who were denied access to any of the finances. But economic abuse goes much, much farther than that. It's about both impairing a person's ability to earn wealth or keep wealth and then consciously going out and undercutting them by doing things like running up debt getting someone evicted from housing, refusing to pay credit card bills, and that sort of thing. And so in the legal arena, there are people thinking about 
how do we deal with this coerced debt, this idea of coerced debt um, through legislation, through the use of the innocent spouse doctrine in the tax law, um, through various provisions in the bankruptcy law to try to deal with those situations where you have someone who, through no fault of their own, and because of the abuse that they were experiencing, finds themselves in this position of having a mountain of debt and no ability to pay it. I feel like a lot of these types of sort of economic pressures and sort of um, economic control, like coerced debt, like we were just talking about, though, might not be as possible without some of the neoliberal economic policies that you describe in the book. Um, So it's interesting to see how the sort of structures that we have in place right now enable abusers to be able to use um, economic coercion as a way of abusing someone else. Um, You talk about neoliberal policy in the book, though. What exactly do you mean by this? So I I would not credit myself as being the thickest neoliberal economic theorist, but I would talk about neoliberal economic policy as a policy that devolves responsibility for the care of citizens in a government from the state to private institutions and relies on the private sector to really provide care in lots of places where the state traditionally has done so. Um, It also involves the movement of of capital from the state into private institutions so that you don't have the same kind of safety net that you had before. Um, And so, you know, lots of things come as a result of this. There isn't a robust welfare policy in a neoliberal state. So for people who've experienced domestic violence, who at one time could have relied on government assistance with housing, with heating, with bill paying, with just cash assistance, Those things don't really exist as they did, say, 40 years ago, um, prior to, say, the Clinton welfare reform in 1994. Um, You just don't have them anymore. But in addition, if you look at global macroeconomic policy and globalization, we also don't have the kinds of manufacturing jobs that we used to have that gave good paying jobs to folks who had less education. And there's been nothing to fill that gap. In cities like Baltimore, where I live, the steel industry, which was filling that gap, is gone. Um, And so you don't have the ability to alleviate some of the economic stress that people are feeling through either government policy or the private sector, which leads to under and unemployment, which, as I've said, leads to perpetration of violence. So it's the combination of the idea that the state isn't responsible for individuals, basically. Um, It's not really responsible for their well-being, except, of course, if you're incarcerated, in which case we're more than happy to pay for you. But other than that, uh, we don't have much by way of funding to help you as an individual and the ways in which that feeds into global economic policy. And that sort of these types of economic policies that are in place in which the the state sort of devolves its responsibility to care for its citizens and, you know, essentially abandons that responsibility or disclaims it. Um, I'll be honest, I've I've seen this with family members I've known where it's rather heartbreaking to see this sort of spiral as to the different consequences that happen when there might be physical violence and economic control and then difficulties with work and then difficulties with housing, for example. It's really difficult if you don't have money to pay rent. And then once you have an eviction on your record, like you mentioned in um, your book, it's really hard to find housing. So this can all spiral out of control pretty quickly, I think, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's heartbreaking when you're talking with a client 
who, and you know, I'm a clinical law professor, I'm still seeing clients all the time. So for me, this is the kind of the daily of my life is talking to a client who says, I might like to get a protective order against this person, but I can't continue to live in this house because I can't pay for it without this person's help. And I know that they won't pay child support. And so here are the constrained choices that I have. I can try to use the legal system, but if I do that, I know that I won't have a guaranteed income anymore. I won't be able to rely on this person for transportation, for childcare, for any of the economic, other economic needs that I have. Or I can stay with this person, deal with what I'm dealing with, and try to figure out a longer-term plan. And I think the impact of eviction is enormous in this area because it really does make it impossible for you to get any kind of credit. So it's not just about not being able to move into a new home. It's also that you can't get any other kind of credit either. And we have very few policies um, that, or, or very few programs that are just willing to put resources into the hands of people who need them. So if what you're dealing with could be alleviated by first month's rent, last month's rent, and a security deposit, there aren't that many places that are going to give you that kind of help. Um, so for, for people subjected to harm, you may be able to find counseling. You might be able to find shelter and you might not. But to find that kind of economic stability that you would need even for the most tenuous kinds of moves is almost impossible. And that really does create a catch-22 for people. And they, they're in the position then of staying, I need to, saying, I need to stay in this relationship because I can't economically make it work any other way. So I want to talk about looking at intimate partner violence in other paradigms apart from just straight criminalization like we've been talking about. And you discuss in your book treating intimate partner violence as perhaps a public health problem and approaches that have been used along those lines. So could you talk about some of the public health strategies that have been used to combat um, intimate partner violence? Sure. So from a public health perspective, you're looking at prevention and how do we prevent intimate partner violence? One of the first things we could do is prevent child abuse and neglect. Um, the ACEs studies, the adverse childhood experiences studies that came out of uh, Kaiser Permanente in the 1990s and have been replicated over time show consistently that the greater number of adverse childhood experiences that a kid has, the much more likely they are to perpetrate intimate partner violence. So if we want to stop intimate partner violence, we need to stop child abuse and neglect. We need to stop community violence. We need to stop intimate partner violence. And we can do that in a number of different ways. Some of the things that I look at are things like nurse partnership programs, which help young parents who may be at risk of child abuse and neglect. There are fathering programs that work specifically with people who've perpetrated intimate partner violence in the past, but who are now fathers to help them improve their parenting. Sometimes those programs overlap with other issues like substance abuse. Sometimes they don't. In terms of intervention with individual people who are using abuse, unfortunately, the data on batterer intervention programs, as they're called, is not great um, in terms of their effectiveness, but there are bright spots. And the programs that tend to work are programs that rather than following just kind of a general narrative of domestic violence is about power and control, understand that they are dealing with individuals who may have had other experiences in their lives. So one thing that we tend to ignore quite a bit in the context of intimate partner violence is that people who are using violence are often people who've been traumatized at some point themselves. It's a difficult idea, but you have to hold two things in your hands at the same time, that people are doing harm and that people have been harmed. And the best batterer intervention programs recognize the trauma that people have experienced and work on that trauma to help them be less violent. 
So the Strength at Home Men's Program, which came out of the Veterans Administration, I think is the best example of this and has really has had really good uh, results with combat veterans who have come back suffering from PTSD and who have begun to use violence. PTSD is highly correlated with the perpetration of violence. So trying to find interventions that actually understand people as they are, not as excuses, right? The fact that you've experienced trauma doesn't excuse your behavior, but it does explain it. And so we can intervene in ways that make sense and that are attentive to the things that people have actually experienced. Um, people have used edutainment um, to try to um, address intimate partner violence, the idea that we can create societal messages about nonviolent norms and about how we should respond to violence through entertainment. There's been great work on that across the world. And then there are population level interventions that would be incredibly helpful. One is a total no brainer, which is gun control. Uh, you're five times more likely to be killed in an intimate partner violence situation. If there's a gun in the home, getting rid of guns in homes would do a tremendous amount to help us with intimate partner violence homicides. The one that's a little more controversial is about alcohol, but uh, domestic violence is both more serious and more likely to create injury when someone has been drinking. And so trying to address both the availability of alcohol and someone's use of alcohol are ways that we could do public health prevention around intimate partner violence. And again, that's a place where the battered women's movement or the anti-violence movement has been reluctant because you don't want to say it's an excuse that someone was drinking. And again, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. And unless and until we start to deal with some of these correlates, we're not going to make any real inroads in preventing violence. And that's what I find really interesting about the anti-violence movement's perspective on this, where they don't want to find explanations because they're worried about things being excuses. But that seems to be so much of a reactionary sort of viewpoint. You want to prevent this in the first place, um, I would hope. But um, they seem rather determined to take care of things after the fact rather than trying to prevent them in the first place. And it's very frustrating as you read the book to realize that there's sort of this um, disjuncture in perspective that way. Well, and that's exactly it. The, the law is a reactive mechanism. Law doesn't stop anything, although you know, there are people who would argue that the, the expressive power, power of the law acts to keep people from committing violence that they would otherwise commit. I don't know that I believe in that particularly. I don't see how, you know, given that rates of violence haven't fallen as much as the overall crime rate has fallen at the same time that we've been pouring vast amounts of resources into criminalization, it doesn't seem to me that the, the law is playing that expressive function in any way that has an appreciable impact on rates of violence. And so having this reactive measure, and it is a purely reactive measure, isn't doing the work that we need it to do. If we're serious about stopping violence, we have to find things that actually stop violence. And none of the data suggests that criminalization has done that. So are there any community-based approaches like restorative justice out there that have been successful in trying to do this? Successful is a hard metric in this context because so few people have been willing to try restorative justice in the context of intimate partner violence. There's a long history in the anti-violence movement of opposition to any mechanism that takes intimate partner violence out of what they would call the public sphere. We, I, I am part of the anti-violence movement. I disagree with people about this. So what they would call the public sphere and into the private sphere I would argue that something like restorative justice is much more public than a court proceeding because the community is not sitting in the courtroom watching what's happening and most of the community has no idea what happens in the courtroom. But if you're doing restorative justice based in community, you are actively engaging members of the community in that work. There's not tremendous data on 
restorative justice in the context of intimate partner violence, but the few studies that exist, most of which come from other places, including Australia and New Zealand, are pretty positive. And I think there's a real opportunity for us to start to explore that, particularly because only about half of people ever call law enforcement in the first place. So for about half of people, they're not turning to the state systems. They're not turning to the criminal or civil legal systems. And the question is, you know, what are we providing for them? And the answer is very little. So if we could figure out ways to do this work in community, I think it would be tremendous, have a tremendous impact for the better. But the little bit of data that does exist suggests that both victims and those who use harm get a tremendous amount out of restorative justice. Victims, because they get the opportunity to hear why somebody did what they did and to confront somebody with the harm that they created. And offenders, because they actually have to sit with what they've done in a very direct kind of way, and then think about how to redress that harm in some way. And that redress can include some of the things we were talking about, like economic kinds of help um, or emotional kinds of help. It just depends upon what the individual wants. We've decided in the context of intimate partner violence that justice means punishment, but that's not true for a lot of people. Punishment isn't meeting their justice needs. And so these community-based interventions can help. I think one of the problems that we have is that people think that we could suddenly kind of move criminalization to the side and plunk down restorative justice and that one could substitute for the other. That's never going to happen. Restorative justice is time intensive. It's labor intensive. It should only happen if the person who's used harm is willing to accept accountability. And all of those things make it much more difficult, uh, much more meaningful, I would argue, but much more difficult than the criminal processing system that we currently have that's able to run hundreds of thousands of people through it a year without very much thought. Um, beyond restorative justice, there are other kinds of community accountability happening as well that I think are really amazing. And COVID actually has brought some of that stuff kind of more to the surface. So people have been talking about pod mapping, for example, for quite some time in the context of intimate partner violence. How do you figure out who your pod is and what specific things it is that they can help you with or bring to you? How do you go to your community and ask for the things that you need without bringing uh, the police or you know, the state into your home? And so a lot of that has you know, been happening for a long time, um, but is really getting an opportunity now when people know that to call the police in the current situation means sending somebody into a central booking facility that probably is lousy with COVID, that may lead to the person that you love, but for their violence, uh, coming home with a, a virus that could kill them and sharing that virus with the rest of the family when, you know, after two or three days, because most cases are still charged as misdemeanors, they come home. So expanding our focus internationally, you mentioned Australia and New Zealand as places that have been um, doing more experiments with um, restorative justice. Um, what might we learn from international human rights norms and applying them here in the United States to combat intimate partner violence? International human rights norms, I think, can help us expand our focus on what our interventions should be. So international human rights law thinks about due diligence and the responsibility of states to address violations of rights um, in the context of intimate partner violence, not just those violations of rights that are committed by government actors, but also harms that are done by private actors, but are facilitated by the government's inability or unwillingness to help. And what international human rights law does is say it's not enough just to prosecute and to punish, but you also have to prevent violence, you have to protect people from violence, and you have to provide reparations. 
And so by adding those three additional P's, it's often referred to as the five P's, by adding those three additional issues, right, prevention, protection, and providing reparations, you're really expanding the lens quite a bit in terms of what the range of responses that you have should be. I personally don't believe anymore that prosecuting and punishing are getting us where we need to be in terms of the prevention of violence, in terms of eradicating intimate partner violence. Focusing on those other aspects, I think, is going to be much more productive for us in terms of lowering our rates of violence and having any kind of meaningful response. In closing, toward the end of the book, you present sort of this hypothetical, this woman who has been subject to intimate partner violence, and she is embarking potentially on two separate paths, one being conventional prosecution, the other where she has a host of other options that she might um, think about um, availing herself of. And this book has been really fascinating because it looks at all these different concerns that, you know, I think we should be balancing, but are failing to do so in an effective way. So in sort of your ideal version as to how to help her move forward, um, what options would she have available to her and how would she be able to move forward with her life? In Options is exactly the right word. That's what I think about all the time with my live clients in my scholarship. How is it that we create as many options as humanly possible for people? And so in my ideal world, there would be economic support, direct resources that get put into her hands to help her address whatever it is that she wants to address, whether that's the need for a new place to live, uh, transportation, childcare, any of the things that are keeping her from being able to move away from the source of harm. Um, it would also mean that there would be job training, job readiness, and jobs available to her partner if she wants to stay with that partner because of the high likelihood that if someone is under and unemployed, they're perpetrating intimate partner violence. There would be remedies for destroyed credit and coerced debt and all of the kinds of things we've talked about already. There would be restorative justice programs and community accountability programs where you could walk in and say, here's what I need. How can you help me meet this need using the community resources that I have? There would be prevention, meaningful child abuse and neglect prevention, real money put into those programs, programs that dealt with the intersections of substance abuse and alcohol abuse and intimate partner violence. Uh, offender intervention programs that focused on people as people and not as stereotypes on a binary that really doesn't serve anybody particularly well of demon offenders and angelic uh, victims. We would have all kinds of options that would enable this person to drop in and get what they needed as they define justice. So we wouldn't assume that justice for them meant punishment we would have a conversation about what justice meant and then go about trying to find it. The one thing I will say about the end of the book is that I was in a different place when I wrote it than I am now. So in 2018, when the book was published, <clears throat> it took a fair amount of heat um, behind the idea that we would ever consider decriminalizing domestic violence. And when I wrote it, I basically punted at the end and said, you know, we're never going to decriminalize domestic violence. That's unlikely and it's probably unwise. And so then gave a number of, kind of prison reform type measures so that if we're incarcerating people for intimate partner violence, we're not doing the kind of damage that incarceration currently does. You know, fast forward two years um, after a lot of thought and a lot of reading and working with other people and working with my clients and particularly working with incarcerated clients, I have come to abolition as a position 
And I wouldn't write anymore that I think that decriminalizing domestic violence is unwise. The research doesn't support the effectiveness of criminalization. It's diverting resources from all of these other things that we could be doing. And there's no world in which the violence of incarceration, the violence of state intervention is ever going to end violence. And so that's the piece of the book that I would write differently now um, in terms of the options that are available. And that's tricky because I have clients who very much want punishment. Um, And as a client-centered lawyer, it's not my place to tell them that they shouldn't want that. But when you really start to get into it with somebody about what it is that the goals that they're being met, one of the things you learn is that our imaginations are pretty blinkered by the idea that this is the only kind of justice we can have. If we had a world where justice meant a lot of these other kinds of things, I think fewer people would want that punishment. I think many more people would want some kind of genuine redress that validates their experiences, that gives them voice, that meets other kinds of needs. And so that's what I would aspire to. Thank you so much, Lee. This book is so important in that I think it will help to expand everyone's imaginations as to what we could aspire to when it comes to trying to prevent domestic violence and trying to decriminalize it in future. So everyone listening, you got to read this, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, A Balanced Policy Approach to Intimate Partner Violence. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege to get to talk to you. Mm -hmm.